welcome to episode 112 of Tea or Books. I'm Simon. I'm Rachel. And uh, we're going to do things a little bit different in this episode. We will be talking about two novels in the second half, They Were Sisters by Dorothy Whipple and The Three Sisters by May Sinclair. But in the first half, um, we will... <laughs> have a cat getting in the way there we go sit down. we will go through some of our favorite reads of 2022 of uh, not necessarily books published in 2022 but just some of our best reading experiences um but before that how are you doing and what are you reading um i'm very well thank you happy new year everybody um i hope you all had a lovely rest over the christmas and new year period or whatever holiday you celebrate um I am very well. I've very much enjoyed having a week off work. I mean, it was a bit of a shock to the system for me to go back to work in November after having over a year off work. Um, and yeah, I didn't realise, I think, how tired I was. So um, it's really been, I had a list of all these things I was going to do. And obviously I've done none of them. But I was like, do you know what? I'm going to listen to my body and I'm just going to rest and relax and read lots of books, which is what I've done. Um so I've obviously finished reading the two books that we're talking about today, which I enjoyed very much. But also when I was at my um, parents, well, I was at my parents just before Christmas and they live in um, Tunbridge Wells that has very good secondhand bookshops. And while I was frantically running around on Christmas Eve trying to do the last of my Christmas shopping because I'm terribly organised, um, my mum has a go about at this uh, at me about this every single year and I'm, like, I'm never going to change I'm never going to change I'm always going to do all my shopping on Christmas Eve it's just who I am um and while I was doing that I thought you know what I'll just pop into the into the secondhand bookshop just to you know treat myself um ended up buying many more presents for myself than um for anybody else <laughs> but I I came across in the bookshop two of the Miss Reed books which um I think oh. we've talked about before but not in depth I know you're not a huge fan um and I mean, I'm right in saying that, aren't I? Well, we did Fresh from the Country, didn't we? Which I did quite enjoy. Oh, yes, we did. Uh, yeah, but I think you found the other ones a bit twee. Yes, yeah. Yeah, which they are, but you know what? Sometimes that's just what you want. So <laughs> I happened to, to pick up very nice sort of early editions with dust jackets of um, two of Fairacre books, which are, she's got two series, one's called Thrush Green and one's called Fairacre. And I read all the Thrush Green books and I've only read the first one of the Fairacre books. So these happen to be number two and number three. And I was like, perfect. So I picked them up and those two books got me through Christmas into through the new, new year period. And they were just the kind of like total lack of needing to think books that I needed. I just loved them. So that's oh, that what I've been needing. Yeah. 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 But what they call Village Diary and Storm in the Village. Yeah. Really enjoyable. Nice. Mm, what about you? What have you been reading? And you've been ill, so we all have to be, feel very sorry for you. Nice you well me, yeah. Thank you. Uh, yes, I as as people have seen on maybe my blog or social media, I um, I'm not really able to read print books at the moment, which is really sad for me because uh, of some eye issues. But I'm listening to audio books, um, and I'm currently listening to um, what's it called? The second of the Foresight Saga books, Tillette? No, In Chancery, In Chancery. Um, mm. which, I've never read them. Um, we did do the first one of them on an episode here. Really? <laughs> yeah, we compared it like with... I have never read these books. <laughs> we did the first one with um, the first of the Catholic Chronicles. 
have absolutely no recollection of that whatsoever. How funny. <laughs> I think you were there. I think you read it. <laughs> Maybe uh, I just about... said I did. <laughs> you have to go back and listen, see if you were just making it up. All about Soames and Irene. Um, and this, well, the second one picks up about, uh, is it 12 years later? It's, it's the turn of the century uh, around, the, lots of people talking about the Boer War. Um, and I don't remember a lot about the first one. So I think quite a few characters are the same, but uh, I only really remember Soames and Irene, who are both still there. But uh, yeah, I'm enjoying that. That's a good, I mean, Goldsworthy is, is a reliably good prose writer. That's why he was so beloved at the time. But um, mm. yeah. Uh, and then two very good different TV adaptations of it, I think, have helped. Yes, I um, remember watching those. Yeah. And there are two things I want to mention before we keep going. One is that I've been a guest on another podcast, uh, which um, sent people towards Unburied Books. Um, they had an episode on Lolly Willows by Sylvia Townsend Warner, which we, we've done yeah. on here at some point. And Dylan and Cassia are the co-hosts. They're going through all of the uh, New York Review of Book Classics. Uh, I think oh. I was in only episode three or something, so it's quite new. But um, they were very they were very fun. I felt like a sort of elder statesman because they're, they're very young and enthusiastic <laughs> <laughs> and just really fun uh but I, I mostly enjoyed that dylan would quite often shout let's go in enthusiasm i was trying to think maybe i should bring that onto your books just every now and then i don't know whether that would point. suit our vibe no. <laughs> um they were lovely and i it was a really really fun episode to record and i also wanted to share a review i don't think i've mentioned on the podcast before i messaged it to you from taz it was actually in October, but uh, I hadn't seen it until December, I don't think. Um, just a little review. I enjoy every episode of this, and Rachel always makes me laugh the way she progresses all her domestic chores during the podcast, as does Simon's reaction. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed a lot. Doing anything else today, Rachel? Well, actually, no. I was thinking I could do my ironing today, but I did it last night. So I'm actually just sitting on the, the armchair with my cup of tea. I'm fully engaged. <laughs> Taz will be disappointed, but I'm grateful. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, so as mentioned, we haven't got a, no a normal topic in the first half, but we do want to go through some of our best reads of 2022. Some of mine are mm. podcast reads, most of them aren't, but... Um, We'd like to start us off. We'll do about 10 each. I sort of talk about them quickly. Yeah. But uh, yeah, kick us off. So are we going to do, I do one and you do one. Is that how we Yeah, do? I think so. Let's do that. Yeah. Okay. Um, if so you can I save your really absolute best one till the end, maybe that would be great. Oh, okay. Right. Well, hang on. I'm just going to have to have a quick think about that then. Because um, I hadn't got them in any particular order. Um, gosh. Okay. Right. Well. <laughs> I think probably um, I would say one that I really enjoyed towards the beginning, one of the first books I actually, I think maybe it was the first book I read in 2020. Um, I think this might be on your list as well, Simon, is um, Four Gardens by Marjorie Sharp, mm. which is a book that we read for the podcast. Yes. And we had it with Five Windows, I think, by D.E. Stevenson, which is also we another did. lovely book. But Four Gardens by Marjorie Sharp is one of her very early novels and it's a wonderful story about a woman going through um, different phases of her life and what's really interesting about the structure of the book is that her, the different phases of her life are sort of tied in with these four gardens that have a um, very specific role in each 
era of her life or stage of mm. her life, if you want to call it that way. And I thought that was a really interesting angle to take uh, and the structure to take us through her life to think about how she's connected with these natural spaces and um, how how her connection with those spaces and how she uses the spaces for different purposes at different points in her life when she's going through very different experiences was really really interesting and it was also I thought as well a really beautifully written book quite different in tone to the rest of Marjorie Sharp's books as well because I think most of her books, not all of them, I mean, Britannia Me is not so much as well, but most of her books are known for their humour. Mm. And I wouldn't say that Four Gardens is ne- is a laugh a minute. Um, it's <laughs> much more of a, of the kind of novel that you would actually, I mean, it reminded me quite a bit of an E.M. Delafield novel. Kind of had mm. that sort of tone, tone to it, that sort of domestic, but quite um, incisive view of what it is to be a woman and to go through the different phases of a woman's life. Lots of also wonderful period detail. And I, I'm a huge fan of Marjorie Sharp. I've actually read a lot of Marjorie Sharp novels this year. And all of her novels are very different, which again, makes her a really exciting person to read because you never know what you're gonna get with each one of her books. And I, I'm, I've still got many more of hers to read actually. So I'll be interested to see how her um, style develops over time. but. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. And it was just a book that I found quite uplifting, but also moving. And it sort of stayed with me in a way that I don't think any of her other books have um, in such a sort of profound way. So, yeah, highly recommended. And it has been republished now by um, uh, Dean Street Press. So it's easy to get hold of if you if you want to read it. Yeah, it was lovely having Claire on that episode to talk about it mm. and indeed suggested that we re- do that comparison with those those two novels. And yeah, similarly, I, it's actually number 10 on my list for the year. Oh, uh, how funny. So yeah, it was going to be my first one to talk about, which, yeah, I think, um, as you say, it's, I mean, it's not miserable by any means, but it is maybe more poignant than some of her other books mm. and there's some... Um, it's a lovely friendship in it towards the end as well that I really enjoyed. Uh, female friendship in there. Um, yeah. Uh, well, since that was going to be my first one to talk about, I'll go on to my next one instead, which is uh, Remainders of the Day by Sean Bythel, which uh, is the uh-huh. next in the ongoing uh, Diary of a Bookseller series. Uh, have you read any of them? I can't remember. No, but is he the person who runs the bookshop in Wigtown in Scotland? He is indeed, yes. Because I've been to the bookshop and I have seen him in the flesh, but I've never actually read the books. And yeah, I, I think this is the first one that's come out, first proper one that's come out since I saw him in March 2020 in the bookshop. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's very similar to the previous ones. If anyone's read those, very dry. It's mostly filled about with stories of how ridiculous his um, customers are. Uh, but he seems to get slightly less brusque as the volumes go on. Perhaps as they become popular, he's realised that people might read them and see themselves. But... <laughs> <laughs> I will say this year, which didn't, didn't make my list, but I read um, Three Things You Should Know About Rockets by Jessica Fox, who appears as Anna in, the, in those diaries and is his now ex-girlfriend. And that book is basically about her moving from America to to be to work with him there and then falling in love with him um oh. so it's is odd seeing him from a very different perspective uh 
and there is a yeah particularly when you know the love story hasn't ended particularly well they're not no, no longer together and they're both i believe both married to other people he's certainly married to someone else now uh but yeah i raced through remainders of the day on holiday got it for my birthday and read it whilst i was on holiday for my birthday and it's um just so fun i hope he does many more of them well um i uh, i should at some point pick up um those books because i'm sure from whenever I have been in a secondhand bookshop and experienced the um, interesting cross-section of society that populates them, I'm sure there must be many hilarious tales yeah. <laughs> within. I do think that it's it's quite interesting, actually. Sec- bookshops and libraries, um, uh, I always think, am I one of these people when I'm in there? <laughs> I think maybe I am, maybe I just don't know. He did do a little so, book called yeah. Seven Types of People You Meet in Bookshop, and I was trying to work out which one I was, and I came to the conclusion I was the middle-aged lady who talks about the Bloons Group too much. <laughs> 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 if I was I'll any of them. i have to look at those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, perhaps we should do an episode where we diagnose ourselves. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Right, what's next on your list? I think the next thing I want to talk about is a series of books. There's three, three of them. And they're autobiographies by Deborah Levy, who mm. is a British writer who has actually written um, a huge variety of, of different stuff. She actually started out as playwright and then she moved into novels and um, she's written a trilogy of books. They're called Things I Don't Want to Know, um, The Cost of Living and Real Estate. And they are, um, the first one is about writing the second one is about the cost of living as in like you know having to make a living and how you juggle all of those things and then real estate is about how all the homes that she's lived in and and all that sort of thing and they're very unusual in terms of um autobiography because they they're not really linear they're quite um anecdotal they jump around Mm. a lot she sort of uses objects or moments that will then jump her off into thinking about things in the past could be things that happened as a a child she grew up in South Africa and then moved to Britain as I think she was about nine or ten so and her parents were anti-apartheid campaigners and her father was in prison for a while because of that um so she had a really interesting upbringing and that's obviously really colored her way of life but she's also had this kind of sort of eclectic life in North London and she goes through a divorce and talks about parenthood and juggling that with trying to be a writer and trying to also earn money and a lot of the stuff that she she talks about about being a woman and having a woman shape shapes you as well I found really interesting I mean you don't have to to know her as a writer to engage with what she's saying about life and life lessons and I just found them you know books I just absolutely ripped through all three of them because um, I just found them so compelling and so fascinating and just so many things that she says. I just thought, oh, gosh, that's so wise. Oh, yeah, that's so interesting. Or I must look that up or I must go and read that or I must go and visit that. Um, and, yeah, so I just found them really interesting. I didn't know what to expect when I went into them, but several friends had said to me, oh, my goodness, you must read these. So I thought, okay, I'll, I'll check them out. And then once I started, I couldn't stop. So if you're, if you're uh, interested in reading something that's a little bit different, then um, or, and you also just want to experience a really – really great prose stylist i would recommend going for those and i've never actually read any of her novels and um i'm going to this year because i'd like to i've not not read any of her novels i've not read any of her plays so i i now want to read everything she's written 
Amazing. Yeah, I think I've got things I don't want to know somewhere, um, or at least I've it's been on my wish list for a long time. The only thing I've read by her is a really short thing she wrote called Rearranging My Shelves, I think it was called, or something like that, but basically about downsizing and what to do with her books, uh, which was about a bit, a bit more than that. But it was, yeah, it was... Uh, was it one of those penguin shorts or something? It was. It was one of those. Yeah, I think it was maybe only forty pages or something. But um, I did enjoy that and meant to read more of her at some point. My next one is War Among Ladies by Eleanor Scott, which came out from the British Library Women Writers series this year. Uh, and although it came out this year, I actually only read it, or in twenty twenty two rather. I only read it at the beginning of the year. It was not one of the books that I suggested. It was the first one since the. Si- since the first couple, which was not my suggestion, but uh, but is nonetheless very very good. It's um, set in a girls' school in um, the beginning of the 20th, 20th century. I think I probably talked about it last time. It's um, uh, it's a girls' school, but you don't see that much of the students. It's more about the teachers, and it's about mm-hmm. uh, these two things that make teaching there very difficult. One of which is that you can't retire early and take your pension. And the other is, which is if it's, if a student fails one subject, then they fail all subjects. And so there's one teacher who's a few years off retirement, the French teacher, she's a very bad teacher. She used to be much better and she's got much worse. Uh, and so she's a sort of pariah because she can't retire or leave, because she knows she won't get another job if she does try and get work somewhere else. Uh, but she's the reason that everyone's students are failing the classes um oh. and and what and then in contrast there's a there's a new young mistress straight out of college or something or yeah she's in her early 20s uh who is much more hopeful i guess but um so yes yeah, in some ways quite a sad book but ellen has got right so well that it it's not it doesn't feel like a miserable book it it, it, it is um uh, just well it's often quite funny as well she's got quite a dry narrative sense of humor so it is it is moving but also quite witty and yeah, I was really glad someone recommended it um, in the British Library team. Yeah, well, I feel um, I'm looking forward to reading that actually because I mean anything set in a school is right off my street. So um, yeah, I will I will get hold of that one. There's quite a few yeah, new ones like that come out, aren't there? Yeah, so I need to to get on top of those. Yeah, and there indeed will be another one in the list before I'm finished. Oh, wow. Mm. <laughs> okay, well, now I've got to think of the one that I would put next on my list. I think I'm going to go next with Lucy by the Sea by Elizabeth mm. Strout. So Elizabeth Strout is one of my favourite contemporary writers and she published um, the latest in her series of Lucy books um, this year. And it is a pandemic novel. So it's set during the, the 2020 pandemic. Um that first sort of wave of it and it's the story of Lucy and her husband William and well her ex-husband William um, and them leaving New York for Maine and basically experiencing the um, the pandemic together and all the different feelings and emotions that go along with that and as with all of her her books it's very easy to read and you it's so well written that you don't notice the writing which I I always think is um a very rare skill actually and I read it in about two hours straight and it was a really interesting experience to sort of go back to that time that's so close but also now feels quite Mm. far away 
Um, and I think a lot of us, I mean, my friend and I were having an argument, well, not an argument, but um, the other day about, you know, what we were doing last Christmas. And she was adamant that we were in lockdown last Christmas. And I was like, we really weren't. It no, wasn't last weren't. Christmas we were in lockdown. And she was like, yes, it was. It definitely was. I was like, it wasn't. It was the Christmas uh-huh. before. And we just couldn't agree on it. And I thought, isn't it funny how it's so recent and yet we've forgotten the details? You know, we've forgotten yeah. exactly when things happened or whatever. It's all just become a bit of a blur. And so going back to that time in the book was quite interesting to kind of revisit those emotions and the, you know, she really describes so well that first kind of moment of shock, like Lucy's ex-husband William says to her, you know, we've got to get out of New York now. And, and she's like, oh, you know, okay, fine. Should I take my laptop with me? Or, you know, because we'll probably be back in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. And I remember having that exact discussion with my sister who, um, oh, yeah. you know, insist- insisted that I come to her straight away this was before lockdown was even announced. She just, she was just was just convinced it was going to happen. So she was like, "You need to come come to me now." Um, and he you know, sent my brother in law to come and get me, and, and against my wishes at the time. <laughs> and I was thinking, and you know, and he came round and he was like, "Is this all you've got?" And I was like, "Well, yeah, I'm just going to pack things. I'm just going to pack enough stuff for a couple of days." You know, I just it, it just wasn't. Yeah. I just couldn't compute it. And Lucy goes through that process as well with with her ex husband when you know they're arguing over what she should take, and he's like, you know, you need a bigger suitcase, you need this, and she's just like, she can't fathom the fact that she won't be coming back. And it's yeah, it's a really kind of raw book, but also one that I think is is really interesting about exploring you know what happens to us when we go through a seismic event like this and how it changes you and how it doesn't change you as well she's such a great writer and if you haven't read any of her books i really recommend um starting with them she's got some standalone novels but i mean i think a lot of her characters crop up in in other books but there's two main series so the book i'm talking about which is lucy by the sea it's in her series of books about um a woman called lucy the first one is um, oh gosh, can't remember the name of the first book. Hang on, I have to go. I'm going to have to get up and walk over to my bookshelf. Um, <laughs> is oh, my name is Lucy Barton. Is is the first one, and then it's followed up with Anything Is Possible and Oh William, and then Lucy by the Sea is the fourth one. And other people might be more familiar with the Olive Kitteridge series because that's um, been made into a, a TV series. Um, if anyone's interested, so yeah, highly recommended. Yeah, and we did those first couple in an episode a while ago, which is still the only ones I've read by her, but I have bought a few more since then. Um, yeah, good. Yeah, my mum's my mum's a big fan, and she uh, she bought some more over Christmas. Actually, she's like, oh, I really want to read more of her, so I shall be stealing those. Well, not stealing, borrowing um, <laughs> when she's finished. But my mum's got my copy of Lucy by the Sea at the moment, and is enjoying it very much. So nice. My next one is Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland, and I, I don't know if you come across this. I don't read a lot of Christian yeah. nonfiction, but uh, it's ba- the subtitle is The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers, and it's a really good book about Jesus. So it basically looks at his nature through the Gospels uh, and r- unpacks different uh, what, a, what a Christian term, unpacks. But yeah, it talks about uh, um, what his character is like through who he was and what that means for us today, and I found it really helpful so if any any christians listening particularly recommend that it's comfortably the best christian book i've read except for the bible for a long time oh wow that's uh, a yeah. high praise yeah um right in the spirit of moving on quickly i will see <laughs> my next ones i've talked about these a lot so i won't say much but um it's the 
the first of um, Olivia Manning's two um, series about her experiences mm. during the war. So um, this, is, this series is called, often called the um, the Balkan Trilogy, and it's um, three books, The Great Fortune, um, The Sports City, and Friends and Heroes. And you can, um, they've just been republished. You can buy them as three separate books or you can buy them all together. And they are loosely, um, I, but I think they're basically autobiographical, yeah. but they're, they're <laughs> partly partly fictionalized and um olivia manning and her husband were in romania when world war ii broke out and it tells the story of their experiences of, of being in um bucharest and then having to move to athens um and then finally having to at the end of the book having to go to um i think they have to go to Israel actually I think they go to Jerusalem yeah, maybe yeah. I can't remember yeah um and then there's another series which I haven't read yet but I'm going to read it this year hopefully and it's just an absolutely fascinating um exploration of war in perhaps a different part of the world than most of us are used to reading about um and also just a wonderful cast of characters and really absorbing she's a great writer yeah, we did the first one, didn't we? I can't remember what we compared yeah. it to, but um, but I do remember really liking it. And I now own the second and third, but I've not started them yet. Yeah. yeah. Uh, next one on my list is The Home by Penelope Mortimer, which yeah. is actually going to be a British Library Women's Writers series uh, title in early 2023. So mm-hmm. Penelope Mortimer is relatively well-known, particularly for The Pumpkin Eater. Um and a couple of her books have been reprinted in recent years. And this one is sort of like a spiritual sequel to The Pumpkin Eater. Both of them are very autobiographical novels. And this book is about this what happens after the separation of a marriage. Uh, and Penelope Mortimer was just separating from John Mortimer at, that, at the time she was writing it. Uh, so, yeah, the main character has got one teenage son and then... Uh, three other children who are adults, but she has got the home, which is you know where the children are expected to live when they're not gallivanting off around the world. It's darkly funny. It's very, um, it's quite odd in some ways, and uh, yeah, I thought just uh, I don't know if you read any Penelope Mortimer, but if if you've read anything by her, you'll you'll get well. It's certainly the books I've read have got that same sort of sparky tone uh, and quite wry commentary on human frailty in some ways but in a funny way yeah i think it's daddy's gone a hunting penelope mortimer it is i haven't actually read that one that's persephone isn't it yeah i read that years ago and i quite enjoyed it actually yeah it was interesting i've not read many books from that era either so um i shall look out for that when it comes out yeah this one's from, it was published in the 70s so it's a it's um quite it's the latest book we've done in the in the British Library series, but uh, oh. interesting to see how it does. Yes. Um, okay, next one for me, I would say is probably The New House by Lettuce Cooper, which mm. um, was a really interesting read for me because I read it, first read it, but well, I didn't read it, I sort of started it a few years ago. I didn't like it at all and gave away my copy. And I don't know why, it just didn't connect to me at the time. I just didn't like it. I was like, I don't understand why this is a Persephone book. I don't like it at all. And then I happened across a, a penguin copy in a bookshop and thought, oh, do you know what? I'll try it again. And I just, I don't know why I bought it. It was like tied in with something I was doing at the time, whatever. Mm. Anyway, picked it up and um, started reading it and was just utterly absorbed straight away. I thought, what a brilliant book. 
and um it's all it's all set in one day and i love stuff that's set over one day i think it's a really interesting Mm. conceit to see how you can kind of do that journey through an emotional journey through one day and it's about a a woman who and her family who are moving from the family a long-term family home and how that exposes their pasts and their decisions and everything else and yeah it's really beautifully written um lettuce keeper is a great writer and she was also had a new book a very long book of hers published by Persephone recently. I can't remember. Na- National Provincial, I want to say. That's right. Um, yeah. Ring a bell? Yeah. Do you know what? That's why I read National Provincial and really enjoyed it. So that's why I bought the new house. Um, and I would highly recommend that as well. But um, yeah, so really, really good book and a, a great gift for anyone who's just moved house. I mean, you couldn't get a, a more appropriate <laughs> name novel, could you? Yeah, I read it a long time ago, but I did really enjoy it. And I've read. I've read a couple others by her, one of which is very bad, called, I think, Black Bethlehem. Um, but then another one uh, called Resident, no, what was it called? Desirable Residence, which was really public, published really quite late. It was in the 80s, I think. But uh, she didn't oh, lose she her. Uh, then. Yeah, it was like 1980, 1981 or something. And I don't think it was that, well, I don't know when she died, but she was quite old when she wrote it. But she, but it felt oh, right. still very vibrant. Alive. And it had things about like squatters who turn... Um, violent so it was quite wasn't wasn't a you know a cozy theme by any means but uh yeah it's very good um my next one is quite an unusual choice for me it's called on color by david scott castin and stephen farthing uh which is about um the seven colors of the rainbow and black gray and white and each of those colors gets a chapter where the authors, one of whom is a sort of scholar and one of whom is an artist, look at use that color as a lens for looking at a certain um, part of culture or history or society. So some of it, like there's a chapter on science, there's a chapter on politics, there's a chapter on race, there's a chapter, as, well, threaded throughout, in fact, is art, um, history, and, and what colors mean in different, in different fields of art. And it was absolutely fascinating. It was uh, quite an ambitious topic for a book and i only read it because it was free on audio audible if you've got an audible subscription um but yeah absolutely captivating really enjoyed it and yeah, uh, yeah i learned i learned a lot most of which i've now forgotten but i would happily re-listen it's very short uh so they really pack a lot in but, uh wow. yeah brilliantly brilliantly done i shall have to check it out yeah um so my next one is Hamlet by Maggie O'Farrell, which I finally mm. got around to reading, even though everyone's been reading it. And um, I I read it, got it from the library because I was like, well, now I work at the Globe, I probably should attempt to, you know, read something about it. <laughs> so, um, and I just thought it was absolutely wonderful. There were points where I didn't want to keep reading because it was too upsetting. But at the same time, it's just such a beautiful book and such a beautiful evocation of women's lives again and also of a child's view of of the world um and i think it's one of the only books i've read set in that time period um i don't normally read historical fiction sort of outside beyond the 19th century but it was a really beautiful again evocation of the rural world of the 16th century and the changing of the world and making people from that period feel very contemporary while also rooting them very soundly in the the surroundings that they would have lived in so yeah really highly recommended um i've not read anything else by her but she's a fantastic writer 
Yeah, I really enjoyed that one. Uh, I think I read this year. It might have been late last year. Uh, particularly this, the chapter, everyone talks about it, but the chapter with the flea uh, following its journey around. It's just so brilliantly done. Um, and I re- I've read a few by her. I'd recommend um, I Am, I Am, I Am, which is her autobiography about, all the, about different times that she had near-death experiences. Oh, yes. Yeah, I remember yeah. reading about that. It's very good. And uh, I also, this year I read um, Instructions for a Heatwave, which I also really liked. Mm. Uh, my next one, I think, might have been published this year, or maybe maybe it was last year, oh. A Town Called Solace by Mary Lawson. So, modern. Um, Simon, you're so up to date. I'm so up to date. <laughs> Although Mary Lawson does feel uh, like she could have been writing a long time ago, and this book is indeed set in the... 70s i think so it's in a small town in canada not the last small town in canada that will appear on my list um mm-hmm. and uh it's, it's narrated by three different people one of whom is clara whose sister has gone missing uh one of whom is a man whose name i can't remember who's just moved into the house next door to clara or or seems to be no one's quite sure who he is or why he's there but he has history of the town and the third mm-hmm. is the um lady who used to live next door to her uh, and there's quite a lot of unlike mary lawson's other books that i've read there's quite a lot of incident and quite a lot of uh um in some ways it's a bit like a thriller in terms of plot but in terms of the way she writes it it's very contemplative and reflective and beautiful and um i did it with my book club and i was trying to explain to them how the other books were less eventful and they're like how could any book be less eventful it's like well this book someone's gone and been kidnapped and someone else is um, not been kidnapped, just gone missing. Uh, and you know, he's got some serious stranger in town, etc., etc. As in the other books, are about you know whether or not to farm a field. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I think she's an exemplary writer. She only writes one book every decade, it seems, or a bit bit more than that, but not very many. I think she's only done four in the last twenty years, and they're they're all marvelous. Well, I she sounds a bit like. Um... Oh gosh, name's gone completely out of my head. <laughs> the American writer Ann Tyler. Oh yeah, so you can see that. She, she, yes, that's yeah. Um, I think she reminds me most of Barbara Kingsolver. Um, yeah, but I can see an Ann Tyler oh, right. as well. Okay, yeah. yeah. All right, interesting. I've never read anything by her, so um, yeah, I'd be interested in checking that out. Yeah. I think... Um. Yeah, I think normally if you like something, I like it. So. Yeah, and I, my yeah. favourite book yeah. I read last year was The Other Side of the Bridge by her. So, yeah, lots of great oh, wow. by her. Okay. My next one is going to be The Good Companions by J.B. Priestley, oh, which I yes. have talked about on here before. Um, I absolutely loved it. I love J.B. Priestley so much. And funnily enough, yesterday I walked past his old house when I was in Hampstead, tramping across Hampstead Heath mm. with my friend. And I was like, oh, J.B., I just love you. Um, and this book was just the book I needed at the at a time when I needed it. It's a story of a travelling theatre troupe um, and how random people get involved with it at a time when they all need a change in their lives. And it's just really about the power of community. I mean, all of J.B. Priestley's books and plays are about the power of community. I mean, he really did like to drum home that message. But it's, <laughs> I think it's a, it's, it's a beautiful message and it really for me particularly in the times we are living in i think we need um, more people to read jb Priestley and realize that we are better together um 
and yeah just a really beautiful heart heart warming book but also he's such a good writer of dialogue and of characters I mean you can see that he's he was primarily a playwright and um I just chuckle away reading them these characters just so come to life and he brings um the world to life so well as well it's got such a great eye for detail so I know he's deeply unfashionable these days <laughs> but all of his all of his books are in print and widely available and i please urge people if you haven't read any david priestley novels do give the good companions a go this year just for me just try it and then <laughs> let me know what you think i have been buying more jb priestley since you started talking about him but i have yet to actually read okay. any of them but <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't surprise me yeah <laughs> they'll be waiting um next on my list is paying guests by ef benson uh people either love or hate ef benson i guess i love him very bitchy in a fun way this is about a boarding house uh so i've probably talked about it in our boarding house episode uh a bunch of people yes. who are there who are all squabbling together and lots of infighting and the, the sort of main drama of it is an art show that someone's putting on and will anyone buy the paintings uh, but I, yeah, <laughs> it was an absolute delight. I yeah, I he I, I always enjoy him. Some of the books are better than others. I think this is the best one I've read outside of the Map and Lucia series. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I have to check it out. Um, I I love the the way that it's like you know the main drama of of the novel is will anyone buy the paintings? And I love exactly. that. That's the kind of thing and it that is very tense. To, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I mean, this is the stuff that our lives are made of. Everyone. Exactly. Um, so I think my probably my favourite book of the year, um, and one that has ju- actually just been published in paperback, so is now much cheaper and lighter to to carry around, <laughs> um, is Ossible by Marit Kapler. And ah, I did speak which about. She did talk about, yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's a book set. Well, it's how do I describe it? It's basically a transcripts of interviews carried out by Marit Kapler in the very small Swedish village of Ossobol where she grew up and, and moved back to as an adult and it's interviews with pretty much everyone who lives in the town in the tiny village um, spanning over huge age ranges people who've lived there all their lives people who've moved recently and it's just the most compelling beautiful eye-opening wonderful interesting random collection of just ordinary people's lives and within that book you see what it is to be human and how much of an impact individual people have on other people's lives and even if you feel like you don't do anything and you live in the middle of nowhere thinking about the amazing lives that each of us live and all of the impact that we have on other people and the stories that are hidden behind very ordinary doors um you know, some of the lives people in this village have had and the things that they've done, um, you'd never expect. And I just found it incredible. It's a 700 page book and I read it in a day. And that just goes to show Amazing. how yeah. I couldn't put it down. And also when I say it's 700 pages, it's basically laid out like poetry. So it's not like dense pages of of, um, of prose. But and it's also really interesting the way that she structured the narratives and how you go between people and which stories you hear when. and um, so yeah i can't recommend it highly enough and as i say it has just been published in paperback so um it's very easily available now and um yeah i just i've never read anything like it and i i don't think i ever will again and it's just wonderful great what a a wonderfully um 
unusual choice at number one. We get that mm. on many lists, which is great. Uh, I've miscalculated and I've got two left, so I'll just finish my final two. So <laughs> number two is Suddenly a Knock on the Door by Edgar Garrett, which is a collection of short stories translated from Hebrew by Miriam Schlesinger, Sondra Silverston and Nathan Englander. People like it when we mention the translators. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was, they're all uh, very surreal. Some of them supernaturally surreal, like someone unzips themselves and there's another person underneath. Some of them technically could happen, like the title story, Suddenly a Knock on the Door, is about a gunman turning up and demanding a, a story. Uh, they, But yeah, he, he just handles that balance between oddness and reality so perfectly. And I got this book as a review book more than 10 years ago. So I finally <laughs> read, read it uh, and I thought it was brilliant. And I've now got other books by him and keen to read more. I think he's such a... I, I think if, if someone can handle weirdness with that sort of uh, expert hand, then I love that. Uh, and it's very easy to go off balance. But my number one book of the year, we're back to small town Canada, A Jest of God by Margaret Lawrence. And we did The Diviners on the podcast, mm. which was another of my favorite books of the year, but I only, I only ever include one book by any one author in my list. And that's this big sprawling, it's still on well, still in Canada, but uh, it moves across Canada and it covers quite a long period of time. And it's a really long book, about 500, 600 pages, wasn't it? Whereas uh, A Jest of God is also in Manitoba, but in a really, just all in this one small town where the, the heroine Rachel has lived all her life. She still lives in the house she grew up in. She teaches at the school where she was a pupil. And it's only about 200 pages. It covers quite a short period. And she is completely absent of hope for her future and then someone she knew at school a man she knew at school moves back and offers that potential hope and it's quite again it's quite a somber novel in many ways but I think Margaret Lawrence who's a household name I think in Canada but not not super read outside of Canada but it's just mm. hard to come across a better writer for a better prose writer and a better understanding of of people and, and delineation of character so there's I think five books in the Manawaka sequence, as they're called. They're, they don't have the same characters, but they're all set in the same part of the world. And I've read three of them, so um, I am going to ration the next two. Mm, yeah, I mean, I I never actually finished the Diviners, and I don't, I didn't a hundred percent get along with it. But um, I'm perhaps more interested in the content of this one, so I might give it a go at some point. Yeah, I think. It's only quicker to get through, and I think maybe more up your street in terms of the teaching scene, uh, setting and all that sort of thing. But, um, and the heron's called Rachel, so what's not to like? Well, there we are. So, obviously my book. <laughs> well, there we go. Our favourite reads of the year. That took quite a long time to knit, but we will still now talk about <laughs> uh, two books about sisters. They Were Sisters by Dorothy Whipple and... The Three Sisters by Mae Sinclair. What you can't tell is this is actually two days later than we were just recording the first half because I had to go out. But here we are. <laughs> um, and shall I introduce They Were Sisters? I'll yeah, do that. whichever one you like, yeah. Perhaps. So um, it's published in 1943 and it's about three sisters. They do have brothers that we don't really care about. So um, <laughs> it's nothing about them. So Lucy, Charlotte and Vera, we see a little bit of their lives uh, growing up and as teenagers, but it's mostly about their lives as adults and how they were affected by the different men they married. So Lucy is married quite uh, sort of 
staid, dependable, kind man called William. Uh, Charlotte has married um, a sort of, we, when you first meet him, like a white, sort of practical, joking, selfish, quite annoying man who turns out to be much more of a monster than that. And Vera, the beautiful Vera, can't come on the scene without being, being to saying how beautiful she is, marries uh, a man who is, I guess, uh, a bit a weak, I guess, for her strong character. Uh, and they have various children. It's a big, chunky book, so there's lots going on, a uh, couple generations of the family. And it's, yeah, it's, I thought, a very moving, um, often quite sad, uh, but with also hopeful book about what, and the, how, the importance of family and how the family you grow up in can really shape your future. Mm, very well summarised. Thank you. Um, so, um, The Three Sisters by May Sinclair, which is published, I don't know when, 19, I want to say 1918 or something, but I've probably made that up. Uh, 14, yeah. 1914. Okay, I got one of the years of World War <laughs> Um And it's supposedly loosely uh, influenced by the story of the Bronte sisters, though there's not a huge amount in there that I would say is about uh, kind of taken from their lives other than perhaps the the setting of the original um and the fact that their father is a um is a vicar and quite tyrannical but anyway it's the story of three sisters um called Alice Mary and Gwenda and as the book opens they've just been forcibly moved to this rectory in the middle of nowhere in the Yorkshire Moors with their father and they've had to come because of Alice's behavior and it's all very it's it's clear that she's um misbehaved in some sort of sexual way and they've had to leave the parish that they loved in the south of England and move to the north as a punishment and um all of the sisters are kind of trapped there for their own reasons they've all got very different personalities but what ties them all together is that they are all attracted to the local doctor Stephen and him coming on the scene is going to cause all sorts of trouble for all of the sisters in different ways and how the girls deal with their entrapment and their desire for romantic fulfillment um, will ultimately decide the course of their lives. So, yeah, that's the book. Yeah, thank you for the summary. Um, and so you've just read that one for the first time, right? But you, I assume you'd read Whipple before, or this Whipple before. Yes. So I have read all of Dorothy Whipple's books, and I read them quite a while ago, actually, and I absolutely love them. But I, I hadn't reread They Were Sisters. I remember reading it the first time and thinking that it was magnificent. And then reading it again, I had exactly the same response. And I was just, every time I read Dorothy Whipple, I'm overwhelmed by how insightful she is about human relationships and also how daring she is in how she explores really dark elements of mm. human relationships and human characters um, you know, this book, as you as you mentioned, the the monstrous husband of of Lucy, it's it's a book about coercive control, and of oh, Charlotte. Sorry. Charlotte, sorry, yes. And um, when we're thinking about the fact that coercive just became a term that was sort of legally allowed to be a reason for somebody to, um, I think it was a few a couple of years ago that a, a woman who'd been mm-hmm. murder of her husband was released because it was proven that coercive control was actually a thing. Um, and she'd been driven to um, what happened because of the way she'd been treated. And this book, when we think it was written in the 1940s, and someone um, is 
is already really insightfully exploring what that dynamic looks like in a relationship. And also so well, she portrays how powerless her sisters are to help her, how powerless anyone is to help her, because you can't intervene in a relationship where the woman doesn't necessarily want to admit what's happening or doesn't recognise what's happening. And it's... yeah. Yeah, really powerful in that sense because you want to uh, like it's very much one of those books where you want to jump in and shake the person. Mm-hmm. Come on, wake up, um, or do this and do that, and and you just have to watch it all happening. I mean, it's a Greek tragedy, really, isn't it? Yeah, I think uh, you're. Right. I was thinking the word coercive control as I was uh, reading it as well, and as you say, that term didn't exist in the forties. Uh, and, but he's so he's not violent um, physically, mm. but he is he is always both Charlotte and the children are always walking on eggshells um, because he can turn anything into a slight against himself and enjoys doing it, enjoys that feeling of power over people. Mm. But it's yeah, I think she does it so brilliantly because he's not uh, like cartoonishly evil. He's very believable as a, mm. a man who's always had his way and expects other people to to always bow to him, but also yeah that just has that dynamic where he enjoys terrorizing at least his wife and two of his three children one of his other children uh a bit more kindly towards uh, uh and it's um i think she's also very good on childlessness so uh yeah the sister um lucy who doesn't have children who as the novel opens is very anxious that her husband wanted children and they, they, they never quite openly speak about it in they, well they never quite uh communicate with each other about what that means to them i guess and they're both what well, particularly lucy is worried about what it means for william uh and yet would probably have been the best mother of the three and mm. de facto is the mother mother figure to quite a few people in the novel uh yeah, I, I, yeah. that was very sensitive portrayed as well and and it's interesting dorothy whipple didn't have children herself and i i did wonder whether there was something of of her in in that character and thinking about so often women who don't have children are characterized as as being um sort of unsuited to motherhood in some way or being a bit selfish or being a bit um i suppose you know in some way hard um and the showing that actually you can be maternal and you can be a, a great mother without having children of your own i thought was lovely and how she just sort of gravitates towards that relationship that she has with her niece is so lovely. And it's that's another thing as well that I think is done so well is is the portrayal of children. Dorothy Whipple does children so well. And the description mm-hmm. of, of how the children of Charlotte and, is it Gerald, his name? Terrible at remembering people's names. Um, um, yes, I think so. And how they the atmosphere in that home affects all of those three children in very different ways. And the depictions of them sitting up in their their nursery upstairs and, and being frightened about you know listening to their dad shouting at their mum downstairs and that tension that they feel and coming in from school and running upstairs really quickly because they don't want to have to deal with what's going on downstairs and that awful awful scene with the dog I mean oh I was gosh, just floods yeah. of tears of the the father using the dog as a way to punish the children. And again, mm. he and what's so chilling and also very accurate about the depiction of, of Gerald is that in his head, he can justify everything that he's doing. He doesn't see himself yeah, being yeah. nasty. He would never consider himself to be nasty. Everything he does is for other people's good. Um, 
And I think she's really, again, Whipple is so insightful in, in creating this character of somebody who's completely blind to their own faults. There isn't actually a maliciousness about him at all because no. he wouldn't see his behaviour as being malicious. He thinks he's perfectly justified in everything that he does and that his wife is just pathetic and useless and, and, his ch- and he doesn't have any love for his children, really, apart from his eldest daughter. And I wouldn't even say that's love. Um, he just wants another slave really to to be there for him and yeah just an easier trophy than the others yeah. yeah um i think something that both novelists in these books do really well is relationships of any sort like uh mm-hmm. something in three three sisters you, any two characters she's so good at whether it's a sister sister relationship father daughter or even you know maid employer or something she none of them are just sort of phoned in they're all really yeah. nuanced in detail um i really enjoyed the sort of the conversations between Gwenda and her father, which were quite Austin-esque in that sort of witty way. Um, and yeah, I think, she, I think she's, it is quite a sort of stereotypical premise in some ways, uh, but I think she is such an engaging and interesting writer uh, that even when it's, you know, three women after the same man, it, it feels more nuanced than that. Oh yeah. I think um, I was quite taken aback actually by, by the novel. I'd never read anything by Mason Clare before. Ah. I don't think I have anyway. I feel like I have read the British Library Women's Classic, but I've, I've, um, which is, I think it's a Tree of Heaven, is it? The Maze. That's of right. Heaven? Yeah, yeah. But I have no memory of it whatsoever. But then I also had no memory of reading um, <laughs> the Forsyth Saga. Yeah. Saga. So who knows? My memories are becoming increasingly. Um, so have you not read Life and Death of Harriet Freen? Oh, I have. Oh, is that Mason Clare? Yeah. That's Mason Clare. Yeah. Okay. Well, there I have then. Um, gosh, that's a profoundly depressing book, isn't it? Isn't um, it? Brilliant, but yes, right brilliant, but profoundly depressing. But I, um, okay, so I have read Mason Clare before. Wonderful, thank you. Um, <laughs> but I think I think I was I was expecting uh, a nineteenth century novel essentially, mm-hmm. and you don't get that at all. This is such a fresh, um, modern uh, piece of prose it's wonderfully written it's written with a real lightness but also that kind of um I suppose wolf-esque um ability to capture emotions and fleeting images and impressions in a way that is is so kind of skillful and also beautiful and that you can't really see how it's happening but you're just you've got all these images and moments and she uses music really well um, you've got all the senses just combining in these amazing sentences and really short chapters, which, again, gives it a kind of pace and uh, a brevity mm-hmm. to it that I just absolutely loved. The, it, the prose just felt so light. It was like a sponge cake. I just loved it. And um, there was, I think, a really interesting Freudian interiority psychology mm-hmm. of those characters. And you're really opening up what it is to be a woman in a society where you've got no power and no choices and I think quite daring as well for the time in making it very clear that all three of these women have a very powerful and very um, meaningful and not sinful or anything sexuality that drives them and Mm -hmm. these are unmarried women at the beginning of the novel these are, are women who have been brought up in a very religious household with a very strict father and yet they've they've got this fascinating um 
load of old, old stepmothers who have all died or run away or whatever. And the father is described as being this very virile, very sexual man. And a lot of his mm-hmm. behavior and his cruelty is yeah. down to he is uh, an unwilling celibate is i think that's how how he's described us at the beginning um he refuses because his um wife he refuses to divorce his wife he's run away from him he won't marry he can't marry again he can't have a sexual relationship and that frustration is pushed out onto his daughters who he also doesn't want to have a sexually fulfilling relationships and yeah, his morality, yeah, morality comes across only in quite spiteful ways, like when he fired, has the maid fired for being pregnant. Yes. Uh, and that, yeah, and as you're right, he is surprisingly virile, or at least depicted, like it is a house of people who have healthy sexual appetites, even yeah. if they, for some of them, you know, uh, presumably haven't experienced that yet. But, uh, but yeah, uh, she was really interested in psychology in general, I think. And I think she is this really interesting bridge between the... Maybe, not, maybe yeah, the 19th century novel and the 20th century novel, I guess, because as a premise, this is quite 19th century in some ways. Uh, I don't think it's as closely aligned with the Brontes as the Virago modern classics cover art suggests. And uh, yeah, yeah, I think that's now more of a selling point uh, than a, than an actual thing. But um, well, you you may well know this already, but uh, others might not. That she coined the term stream of consciousness. So, I did know that. Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, and so she was very much involved in that um, new way of new ways of writing prose in the early 20th century. And I think it, it, she is this interesting bridge between the two and quite a lot of her writing. And she wrote for a long time. So some of the older stuff is a bit more traditional. But uh, yeah, in 1914, this was, as you say, for a novel from 1914, it feels incredibly fresh, doesn't it? Really fresh, really modern and experimental. Um, no. And I, I really enjoy the the way in which the characters are so... Um, I mean, they're not. Well, I mean, Alice is, is such a interesting character. Uh, I mean, Gwenda is obviously the Gwenda is sort of the focus of the novel. It's very, even though we don't see the book through anyone's eyes in particular, because she's really trying to jump into different people's heads and show us the interiority. I think it's um, she uses brackets a lot, which I think is her trying to to get us into people's heads. I don't think she's quite nailed the the free and direct stuff, but um, it's interesting for her to kind of um, focus very much on Gwenda, who's the sister who seems the most unconventional, mm. but actually all of the girls are unconventional in their own way. And I, I, I was sort of blindsided. There's something that happens with Mary sort of halfway through that I just didn't see happening. And you realise then that actually this docile creature who we've we've been maybe lulled into a sense of full sense of security of thinking that she's very sweet and good and and is is a sort of a bit dim is actually deeply manipulative and has been biting her time. Yeah, I think both novels are really good on how people evolve, and so we don't just get someone behaving the same way throughout the book we get the the circumstances over a longer period in they were sisters but in both of them you get the effects of the circumstances bringing out parts of the character that might otherwise have remained hidden or in uh, in particularly they were sisters the circumstances that they've lived through shaping and warping and affecting them and i think it's all done obviously to move the plot forwards but i think in a believable way that it feels like it's character driven in both novels rather than just to get to the plot points and i think really successfully done by both novelists yeah, I think it's... Uh, the one thing I... No, go ahead. See, the one thing in St. Clair's novel that I did not like, uh, really didn't like, was all the dialogue, and or the dialect, rather. Yes. Uh, 
which is only from the working class characters, but you get pages and pages of just littered with apostrophes and being like, did you always spare it? I didn't, I didn't up skipping it all because I was like, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't got, really know what you're saying. I got really annoyed with that. It's, it's very much like in Wuthering Heights. Um, yeah. <laughs> I wish they'd just say, you know, they spoke in a Yorkshire accent. Okay, great. Just we, we can yeah, figure done. it out. We, we don't need you to write it out phonetically, for goodness sake. Um, no, I just I, I just thought even someone from Yorkshire would struggle to understand what Earth is supposed to say. Um, exactly. All done without the uh, yeah the geographical authenticity that she was trying to bring there to the language. <laughs> and that's one of the yeah the little overhangs in the nineteenth century, isn't it? <laughs> yes, very much so. And I think as well that kind of I suppose focus on class and focus on um, appropriateness of relationships because I mean yeah. the novel is set at the time she's writing it, because there is a mention of cars and, and so on and so forth. So she's not trying to create a 19th century novel. It's very much a, a contemporary novel, really. And and it's interesting to think about it in that way. I think because of the countryside setting, it doesn't feel as contemporary as, as it might do, um, particularly if, if you're used to reading, you know, Virginia Woolf and, and other people sure, like yeah. that period, who tend to write city-based novels. Um, but I think location as well is something that's really interesting in in They Were Sisters because the three sisters live in very uh, geographically different spaces and mm. Lucy, who lives in uh, Charlotte, so I keep getting these people mixed up. I'm <laughs> the, the nice sister, Lucy. is Lucy, isn't it? Lucy, yes. yeah. yeah. Lucy lives in this countryside cottage and her the cleanliness of her house and its freshness and the fresh air is contrasted with the city lives of of both of her sisters and and where they live is very much seen as as being quite oppressive and particularly when Vera has to move in the later part of the novel she moves to this sort of very dingy sub- mm. suburb um and it's very oppressive she gets no light in the house and when um her little niece comes to visit her in the countryside there's that real sense of freedom and and she associates um, her aunt and the countryside together as being this sort of wholesome, clean, fresh, um, ex- like people and place and somewhere where she can be free and somewhere where she can be um, safe in a way that she doesn't feel in, in the city. And it's interesting that when we think about in The Three Sisters, um, the other sisters don't like, they hate uh, Mary and Alice hate having moved to these moors they find it very oppressive they find it horrible being out in this nature they're used to living in a seaside resort um and what's i it's not specific about where they're from but it's a fashionable seaside resort on the south Mm -hmm. coast so i imagine somewhere like brighton for example that's got a lot of social life that's that's quite actually city-like and it's gwenda who finds the moors she's in love with the place as much as she is with with the doctor in the place and she finds freedom in this landscape because the landscape allows her to be free. She can go off and walk for miles and not be seen by anybody. Um, and I think it's interesting that for both of those characters, through the eyes of through, through the eyes of whom we see their other sisters, they're both aligned to those outdoor rural spaces, um, and the other sisters are more aligned to more domesticated city spaces. And I'm sure there's probably something interesting psychologically going on there. Yeah, and I did wonder from that that drab suburban home she moves to what what it was actually like in reality. Well, obviously there isn't a reality, but what the sort of house that Whipple had in mind probably isn't quite as dingy and awful as it seems on the page because nineteen no. uh, forty suburbia not the worst place in the world to live. But but yeah, it is this 
cutting off from yeah for, for Vera as her beauty fades um it feels like everything else around her is also fading I guess yeah. and I thought it was really that was really uh again feels quite contemporary view at like what to do if you've always been judged by your beauty when that starts to fade uh, and you know she's going for like face massages and that sort of thing it's about the nearest to plastic surgery that she got but but yeah if it was published if, you, if that character was in a 2022 novel she'd definitely have gone straight for Botox and then on to plastic surgery and trying to keep that perennial youth yeah, yeah. I, I thought that was interesting as well that was a very contemporary that her character felt very contemporary you know she's following particular diets and doing other sorts of things and reading about diets and things in magazines and, and you think very much of this as being a very contemporary way of approaching aging but you realize when you read these sorts of books actually it's, it's not at all you know people were thinking all these things back then we don't change as people um and yeah, I mean, I I was just astounded by both of these books, really. I really enjoyed their portrayals of, of female lives and of female relationships and of the relationships between sisters. Um, now, I know you don't have a sister, Simon, but um, I do. And yeah. um, you know, not that I saw myself and my, my sister in perhaps any of these characters in particular, <laughs> but um, thankfully we have a very good relationship. But it's... Um, and my sister's husband's actually, you know, I love him very much, so that's fine. He's a um, William type, is he? <laughs> well, he probably, probably nice is, one. actually. He is a bit. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's 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 really, in, I always find portrayals of sisters really interesting. I think the the sister relationship is is something that is, is notoriously quite complex and difficult, um, but also wonderful at the same time. And something I really liked in They Were Sisters is how they do, well, despite whatever they're going through, if there's a common enemy or if the sister needs help, yeah. even the selfish sister will drop what she's doing to try and help. And yeah. there is that that bond that even if they're living far apart uh, and they're not part of every each other's everyday lives, there is, um, yeah, that sense that it's, that, that bond is still continuing. We've talked before about how we both appreciate novels that show the relationship between adult siblings who don't yeah. live together. And I think... Yeah, she does it so well. Um, something else she does really well is uh, I, I really enjoyed the servant class in They Were Sisters. I think mm. um, maybe a bit more nuanced than uh, the three sisters because I particularly like Janet, yes. uh, the uh, the the housekeeper, housekeeper, is it whatever she something yeah. like that. Uh, uh, at um, I keep I don't think she'd well. herself as that, would she? No, uh, <laughs> where she's like, "Oh, they coming to visit again?" And Lucy's like, "They came six years ago." <laughs> it's like, <laughs> still. Uh, and was it the um, the uh, governess at oh, I can't remember which one of the other two houses, obviously, where she thinks they want to fire her and they think she wants to quit. And there's but for years this relationship of them both being uncertain about the other one, but actually everyone wants the situation to remain as it is. Yeah. But uh, but nobody can voice the fact that they're worried it'll end and yeah things like that I think she she really invests the seven class in the novels with as full personalities as anyone else we don't see as much of them and we don't they don't get as much plot but they're but they're not just figures coming on in the background to look after the children they've got fully realized and, and um interesting individual uh, personalities yeah no absolutely. so I feel like Mason Claire maybe a little less on, on that front I mean, I thought that the that there was quite interesting depiction of of the servants and Essie is good, I guess. Yeah, yeah, Essie yeah. and her mum, and you know the 
the the gossip trail that sort of goes between all of them and how everything's found out you know very quickly. Maybe I skipped too much of the dialect and missed it. <laughs> yeah well I mean if, yeah, if you actually read the dialect bits <laughs> I mean there's a really wonderful actually um, moment between um Essie and her mum and Essie is the is the maid who's fired by the the girl's father because she's pregnant and you know she goes home to her mum and she tells her and her mum already knows obviously because it's, it's quite yeah, it's like why did you come to me four months ago yeah, what she's right. thinking, yeah. you know there's this exchange between you know the mum's furious with her and everything else but then when it comes down to it obviously she's going to take her in and she's going to look after her and it's I just thought it was really touching and moving and again shows the the sort of the practicalities of life of these things did happen all the time and you did just have to get on mm, with it. Mm. and I think perhaps if we were reading a 19th century novel we wouldn't have seen that side of things um yeah, so yeah. I think there's a real attempt to show a, a sort of across the social strata really which again is something that was a, a modernist interest and you can see that Mason Clare was very much part of that group of writers and I think it's quite sad that she's become forgotten when actually I think she's hugely talented and should be just as as widely read as as the likes of Wolf, Elliot, um, you know, other people. I can't think of anyone else in the top of my head right now. Um, And I do wonder if that is because of the settings and the types of characters that she wrote about, which were often, yeah, not in the cities. They weren't the fashionable groups. They weren't the artists and the writers particularly. I mean, they got artistic and rightly people in this novel but but i guess she's showing that that sort of that sort of personalities existed in these backwaters and in these small mm. communities uh, and uh, i've not read i mean she wrote a huge number of novels and i've read four or five of them but but all of those have people who would be considered outsiders in some way or at least not uh not fashionable society in london that sort of thing yeah i think as well the focus on women's lives in particular Mm-hmm. is something that automatically pushes you to the side isn't it so um but i i would be very interested in in reading much more of her stuff and i don't think a lot of it's actually available which is a shame yeah like weirdly it was all reprinted by the i think it was edinburgh university press or something but in quite scholarly editions that i imagine are just for university libraries for the most part um some of her, some of her stuff is quite easy to find secondhand, but some of it's really hard to find as well. Mm-hmm. I really like um, Anne Seven and the Fieldings, which is about uh, a, a, initially a girl and goes older over the course of the novel, who's uh, befriended by this family and her relationship with the different brothers in that family over over time. It's another really good one. Yeah, but, uh, yeah I mean, yeah, some of her novels are quite comic I guess Mr Waddington of Wick was quite funny and a bit more sort of I don't know reminded me of E.F. Benton in a way whereas some of them yeah like Life and Death of Harry Freen are just out and out misery basically oh my goodness I mean that's why I don't still have a copy of it I think because I just I was like I I thought it was an incredible book but I was like I can never read this again (laughs) (laughs) um as someone who has read everything by way of or where, where would you put they were sisters in terms of a spectrum of her best best to worst gosh that's a it's a tricky question um I think it's up there with you know her I, mean, I think all of her novels are brilliant apart from young Anne her first one which is still a great a good book but it's it's very much a first novel um mm. oh I mean you're pushing me here <laughs> I would, um I would say 
if I hadn't ever read any Dorothy Whipple and I wanted to understand who she was as a novelist, I would say this would be a very good place to start. That's a good thing to say. Yeah. Yeah. I think. So yeah, I think. Yeah, I um, I think I find her a slightly more variable novelist than you do. Maybe there's some that I think are a bit flimsier, but I think this is one of her very best uh, that I've read. I've read nearly all of them now, I think. But yeah, I think this is definitely up there in terms of nuance and um, yeah, there's nothing, there's nothing cliched in it. It is everything, everything again, fresh. Like the Sinclair, it feels really fresh and it feels really uh, vital. Um, yeah. No, well, but... I, as far as I'm concerned, she can do no wrong. So, <laughs> well, you obviously love both these books, and which are you going to choose? I mean, this is a tough one for me, to be honest, because um, mm. I really do see a huge amount of value in both of them. Um, oh, which are I to choose? I think you know what the I I can't really choose between them both in terms of quality. I think they're both excellent. I think in terms of which would I read again? That's how I'm going to make the choice mm. and yeah. go back to again and again. And I think I would reread they were sisters in a way I wouldn't reread the three sisters. So that's I'm going to come down on the side of the Dorothy Whipple. And I'm going to join you there. So oh. yeah, I really like them both, but I think. Um, it's, they're both, yeah, they're both great, but I think there's just something about the totality of those. This is such an achievement as a book, and it doesn't have that annoying dialect in. That might be the main thing that swings it. There you go. <laughs> I think there's a line of argument that May Sinclair is a better novelist, but I think I prefer the Dorothy Ripple. Like, yeah. yeah. Very, very, very good. Um, that was fun. Yes, yeah, so many sisters. And uh, in the next episode, um, we're going to go for two chunky classics, uh, oh. Ruth by Elizabeth Gaskell and South Riding by Winifred Holtby. Actual yeah. books people have heard of for once. So there you go. Well, we hope people have heard of them. But yes, so um, are we, we better get, well, I better get started on reading, hadn't I? It's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've got the audiobook, it's on times two speed. Um, <laughs> I'll get through it in a matter of hours. Could do it for two today. <laughs> we'll record tomorrow. <laughs> Uh, happy new year everyone i hope your year has started well and yeah. we'd love to know what your best books of the year were uh, to go back to the first half of the episode do let us know if you've um, read anything you think we'd love yeah please do and also any questions for us yes please yes yeah. always right. tea or books at gmail.com right thanks for listening, listening. Bye. Bye.